Now they have Eldritch Blast and they can scare people. <laughs> or they find a sword and they're like, nope, that's metal. They're like, yep, yeah, yeah, nope, that's... This This one is not for me, I could feel it. There are better ways to go about this. Is there a devil I could sell my soul to? Oh my god, that's that gave me an idea for a really just cheap, lazy, try-hardy multi-class of they accidentally find a hexblade patron in the form of a metal weapon and they pick it up and like, oh! and the hexblade's like, nope, nope, don't touch me, nope. And like, no! No take backs. And they have to like, it's like a buddy comedy between you know, a druid and the sword he doesn't get along with. Welcome to Monsters and Multiclass, your Dungeons and Dragons fix. I'm Kevin Odie. I'm Jared Bornigal. And I'm Will Melvin. And we'll be hanging out with you for a while to talk about anything and everything D&D related. This episode, we're taking a look at the Druid Warlock Multiclass, Imperians from the Monster Manual, and then another segment of Ask Monsters and Multiclass. So pull up a chair and stick around for a while. All right, so our two classes today are the Druid and the Warlock. Druids are your full-casting, shape-shifting, nature-loving class. They get the wild shape ability that lets them turn into animals. Requirement to multi-class into is 13 in Wisdom. Warlocks are the oddest caster of the D&D realm. They have very few spell slots. They always cast at the highest spell level they can. All spells come back on a short rest. And more importantly, they get Eldritch Blast. Uh, the only good cantrip in any game ever. Usually they get their powers by entering into a pact with some greater entity, and the requirement to multi-class into it is a 13 in charisma. So, first thoughts on the Druid Warlock multi-class. Let's give it to our resident Warlock lover, Will. So, yeah, anytime you've got... i have never, like, huge on double caster multi-classes, unless, you know, they're a Warlock. So this is one of those examples where it's... You know, perfect. You take the it's druid who's uh, lacking in stuff, namely the ability to catch, cast Eldritch Blast, and then you add that. So I'm not <laughs> so, seeing a whole lot of issues. So you're currently playing a druid. Um, do you find your cantrips to be pretty lacking? Oh, God, they're dog shit, man. <laughs> I think the main one you use is Chill Touch, generally? Yeah, and I'm pretty sure that is exclusive to my subclass. That uh, is, yeah, that's a sport so. druid thing. <laughs> Uh, if, or I like. think this actually does have some mechanical viability in multiple realms and role playing wise I think it's semi interesting but I don't know we'll have to hash that out a little bit more definitely Kevin what are your thoughts so this one's actually not clicking for me at all um, I think I guess I'm not inspired by it I'm not excited by it I'm usually as I read through the different classes with the thought of putting them together a bunch of different things firing off oh we could try this and this and that might make this better and it just didn't happen for this one they feel like they're two very very different classes and the fact it's two different spellcasting ability means they don't really like build on each other that well at best my initial reaction is it seems like it give you some versatility you could sometimes play as a warlock and if the situation doesn't benefit from you being a warlock try out being a druid yeah that's um, fair and that's i think a lot of what you run into once you uh start getting into that realm of two full spellcasters with different spellcasting abilities i mean you just really are going to sacrifice a lot when you go into one over the other um so to me that the thing that I always try and find is what can we get out of a small dip into one or the other uh, so that you don't really have to focus on the spell casting ability. How important are the spells? Uh, you know, there's a lot of spells that sometimes don't need the spell casting modifier um, or at least don't need a higher one. 
Uh, so little things like that are, are what I try to bring in for those. But I think I'm still with you on the uh, overall just I'm not like excited by it immediately or anything. So, Will, what, what do you like about it? So what I do, I, honestly, um, Warlock. That's, that's what I've got. Um, some things that are interesting, and this is, once again, playing to the probably, I don't know, black sheeps of both uh, subclasses, are the Hexblade and the Spore features actually do gel pretty well together. Yeah. I, I kind of thought that as well. Once you start taking a look at the the melee uh, capabilities of each, uh, you wouldn't expect two full spellcasters to uh, mesh so well together for a melee build, uh, but they <laughs> knock it out of the park. Uh, the Hexblade, of course, adds that uh, Hexblade's curse, lets you use your charisma as a casting, or I'm sorry, as your uh, attack bonus. Um, well, that's, that's Hex Warrior. Hexblade's curse oh. is the... You can uh, gain a bonus to damage rolls against the cursed target. Uh, you go to your proficiency bonus. Uh, your attack rolls crit on a 19 in addition to a 20. And if the target dies, you gain 10 hit points to your Warlock right. level plus your Charisma modifier. Right. Um, yeah, Hex Warrior allows you. That's what allows you to bond to a weapon. And then when using that weapon, be able to use your Charisma for the uh, attack roll and right. damage. So in that type of build, you're definitely going to be focusing on that uh, on that Charisma because... Really, none of the Spore Druid's abilities need wisdom. It's kind of up to you how much you want to get out of the Druid. You're still going to have, you know, at least something in wisdom, most likely at least 14. So you got plus two to your spell casting ability for, for any Druid spells. But I think you're really going to want to focus on the charisma for the Warlock. And then you're just getting all of the nice parts of the Spore Druid's wild shape. Uh, get those temp HP uh, and then... You know, the extra necrotic damage when you throw your spores out. So I, I still think these would end up feeling kind of lackluster together. It's I, I mean, I, I get the initial draw to it, but like the spore druid benefits from just going further in spore druid. Like, sure, you get temp HP, but it's four times your druid level. Mm-hmm. So if you just go two levels in it, it's eight temp HP. You know, as you, as you get start getting higher, it doesn't do much. Um, and then you don't want to discount Halo Spores, which is one of the really main features of it, where that's where if a creature enters your range of it, you could, as a reaction, deal Spore damage to them. Uh, not Spore damage. Poison, <laughs> Necrotic damage to them. It is Necrotic, Which is yeah. a con save they have to make. And then if you have Symbiotic Entity up, it's that damage is doubled. That's It's a con save, so it's against your Wisdom your spell save DC, which is based off your wisdom. So that's if right. you're trying to focus on charisma and your wisdom's crap, then that's probably never going to really hit. Uh, and hey, then, well, hits. I mean, <laughs> never hit is, that's just, it never hits. Is what I've learned from it. First off. Second off, it is still a very, it is a uniquely powerful and universal use of your um, reaction. I don't think there's anything... There's not really anything in the game quite as good at using your reaction every turn, especially in melee range. Right. It's, a, it's such a simple trigger of just something needs to be within 10 feet of you. Uh, and when you start making it a more melee-focused class, um, which just Sport Druid does by itself, not even talking about putting Hexblade in it, um, it really is probably the, the greatest use of reaction, or I guess, as you said, most consistent at the very least. Um, so, I mean, yeah, when you talk about combining them, I don't know. 
how much you're going to really get out of a small dip into Druid. I think this might be one of those classes that when you talk about the the level 20 builds, you know, the, the mythical end game, that you might have a lot there. But I think you're right, Kevin. You're going to be slacking for a, a very good portion of the level ups here. Uh, you're going to fall behind in damage. You are just going to be kind of an okay warlock in some situations and kind of an okay druid in others. Right. So, I mean, let's look at one level dip. So if you're mainly druid, let's say spore druid, and the, the one level dip in the hexblade, you get the hexblade's curse, which is nice, but that's all what, once per short rest. Yes. Well, actually, it might be long rest. That one might be short. Weird. No, it's short or long. Okay. Um, so it, that's you could curse somebody and you get the bonus damage uh, equal to your proficiency bonus, which which is nice. But in the same sense, you could go like Druid Ranger or actually go one of the... Um, well, I guess you could still go like Hex. I was saying like using Hex or Hunter's Mark, I think would probably end up outpacing that. Critting on a 19 instead of 20 is nice, but not something worth chasing. It's going to be a me. while to get that extra attack. Yeah. And you and can only it, get the extra attack through Warlocks. Right. That's an invocation. So Druids yes. aren't going to get the second attack ever. Right. Yeah, I think you could get at six level as a Warlock. Mm-hmm. I think as yeah, if you pick an invocation. And then the last thing Hex Blades curses the temp hit points, where if you kill the creature that has temp... With the, uh, sorry, if the curse target dies, you don't have to kill him. You get temp hit points equal to your Warlock level plus your Charisma modifier. So if you're not focusing on Warlock, it's not going to be that great. And then again, if you're focused on Druid, then the Hex Warrior stuff. Like, you get proficiency with medium armor shields and martial weapons. A lot of that you're not going to use because you can't use metal. And then right. you can use your Charisma modifier instead of Strength or Dex. But Druids get Shillelagh anyways, which just allows them to use Wisdom. Yes. So then it's less they have to focus on. It just feels like you're sacrificing a lot to try and force it to work. Yeah. Uh, no, but I you get do you. get a first level spell back first level spell slot back every short rest which is nice and then eldritch blast is it worth oh. it just to get eldritch blast yeah it might be it might be. <laughs> it might be <laughs> that's kind of what the default is on any kind of warlock combo um but the other thing is the this is another thing i think i've brought up before but if you go two levels into warlock it opens up more possibilities than probably any other choice you can make in the game for like that few levels. Uh, being able to get invocations opens up just like these. These aren't mechanically powerful or insane things, but they are things like you just can't get anywhere else. You right. know? Mm-hmm. Eyes of the Runekeeper is a great example. You can read all writing. You know, that's. It's cool. If you have a character that wants that, it's definitely something you can get there. And there's plenty of mechanics in there, too, for your second level dip. Right. But right. that's, or I think, also sight. a requirement. Oh, really? Magical darkness. Do, do druids get darkness? I mean, warlocks get it. <laughs> it's true. I think darkness yeah, at, is um, second level. It's a second level, so you have to go a little bit to get there. Sorcerer, warlock, wizard. Nope. A circle of the land, if you go... That epic swamp, but which you could oh, and swamp specifically odd. Okay, yeah, well, I guess that makes some that's sense. how circle of the land works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You get your, your right, yeah, yeah. You pick your terrain, and then you have a new spell list to pick from there. Okay, yeah. I mean, so at the end of the day, a two to three level dip into warlock, even if it's not specifically meshing with the druid aspects too well, they do just get good stuff. Like even if we we look away from the hexblade. 
because I think trying to force this into a melee class might be a little much, but Mm -hmm. keeping it as a spellcaster and going back to what I was saying at the beginning, where sometimes if you just do that dip and it's two full spellcasters, you don't worry as much about the secondary stat. So maybe charisma is not going to be at 20 with your wisdom, but you're also not going to choose a bunch of spells like hold person where it's really necessary for uh, them to fail to save Uh, any spells that you can get that just happen and are going to keep coming back on a short rest. That's great. Um, I can't remember every single warlock spell at the top of my head like that. This is for Hexblade. I know they get shield. That's one that can be very worthwhile just to have at all, you know, and it's like, you don't need a high charisma in order for shield to be effective. It's not based off your charisma modifier. It's just plus five to your AC for, you know, the next turn. Right. So any, any spells like that are going to be useful. Darkness is one of them. Definitely. Right. Yeah. It's not the second level though. So you'd have to go three into warlock to get that. Yeah, but you Which get a lot. could be worth it. Yeah, because then you can get your uh, Pact of the Blade, Pact of the Tome, or Pact of the Chain. And right. one of the, the combos that I wanted to talk about was the Archfey Warlock, which isn't, like, it's probably the least chosen Warlock. I just feel like I never hear about people going to the, the Archfey. Um, and then the Circle of Dreams Druid. I do not think that... The Circle of Dreams and Archway Warlock have a absolute ton of mechanical synergy. I think you're still going to run into the exact same problems we mentioned otherwise of, you know, just no spell synergy, I guess, or like anything that specifically helps each other. Um, but flavor-wise, the Circle of Dreams are very in tune with the Feywilds, and an Archway Warlock is literally a pact with an Archway. Uh, so <laughs> right there, you've got the role-playing synergy, Uh, and I think going into the Pact of the Chain would be pretty cool. Uh, If only because you're getting a familiar then, which druids don't really have any ways of getting familiars, which is somewhat odd. I feel like they're the type of class, just like rangers with Beastmaster, that I would expect them to have a, you know, a animal companion of some sort, or any type of companion. Uh, so animals pa- aren't slaves, man. <laughs> that's fair. But, Honestly, you know, yeah, I think that's, I think that's kind of the take on it. And then like familiars are more arcane, more in the realm of wizards, where they like that you could almost take it as like they pull like a magical creature from the phase and enslave them. It's the druids well, very they, much being against. They that. essentially they buy the animal with their like incense and all that stuff. It costs like what twenty five gold, right? So you're like bribing know. some animal to. Be stuck in your service. I don't know. That's not very druidic in my in mm-hmm. my mind, Jared. Really? Because I feel like there's some some mutual benefits there that could. I mean, that's like saying that dogs are slaves, which I think well, I you have actually. Said that. Yeah, you have actually said dogs are slaves. Um, <laughs> Animal slaves. <laughs> uh, so I mean, I, I think that's just going with the idea of a mutually beneficial relationship. Uh, that's up to the player to play that up. Uh, but to just cut it out entirely because that's not very druidy is a little, little much. I could see it with the, uh, what you're saying with the Fey patron, that makes more sense where it's like Mm -hmm. you make your warlock thing and they give you whatever, like a pseudo dragon or a sprite or whatever they give you. They're like, Oh, here, this is a tool. And they, I don't know. It makes sense because you promised yourself and it's, 
right. more ethical this way because <laughs> you're a warlock. <laughs> you're a warlock, so you're already like skirting around some ethical boundaries that druids normally wouldn't cross. I guess I don't know. I mean, druids aren't always just goody two shoes, right? No, it's, they're no. kind of always goody two shoes. <laughs> They won't even use metal for whatever bizarre moral reason. <laughs> what other class has that feature? It's like, oh, I'm really, really against X, Y, or Z. That has major mechanical implications. And the only justification is like, oh, yeah, no, that's gross or something. Well, I don't understand monks, why they can't touch shields. Like, why would that? Oh, yeah, they lose all their monk powers when right. you touch shields. Like, oh, my God, if you touch a shield, you can't punch twice. Okay. Lazy anime writing? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, you did mention the uh, the sprite familiar, and I really haven't looked at that as a familiar before. I feel like when people talk Pact of the Chain, the one that always comes up is the Quasit. But sprites actually aren't too bad. Uh, they're one of the only familiars that gets a ranged attack, a very weak ranged attack that is plus six to hit and then does one piercing damage. But the nice thing about it is it forces the, the creature it hit to make a DC 10 constitution saving throw or be poisoned for a minute. Now, I'm not saying this is going to come up every single time or that one damage is going to change the combat by any means. But if you just have a sprite that you can just kind of put up in the corner and just tell it to keep shooting until it poisons something. I mean, hey, that's that's something, right? Yeah. And very flavorful and having a, a little sprite companion, which, I mean, you can reflavor it in whatever way you want. That's kind of the the nice thing, in, in my opinion, is it doesn't need to specifically be a sprite as long as it has the stat block of a sprite. Who cares? Right. What would you give the stat block of a sprite to? I, I, li I literally don't think it matters. You can <laughs> honestly say that it's a possum with wings and has a little short bow. How would a possum <laughs> use a short bow? It's a fey creature. So it's it's just, it's how it looks. It doesn't matter how it actually acts or how many hands the it The short bow just like floats behind the magical possum that you made up and shoots automatically? Sure. I mean, I don't All know right. why it couldn't hold it. Keep in mind with the back to the chain with it attacking, you have to forego one of your attacks right. for it to attack. So at that point, I said, I don't think it's worth it. It's probably not. Super I mean, it doesn't it. scale very well. No, no. I mean, if <laughs> it's kind of a hail mary, or if you can find a way to like give disadvantage on the Constitution save, maybe it becomes worthwhile. Um, but yeah, you're right. It doesn't scale super well, or it's a good way just to, I don't know, start combat. Um, if you are going back to the chain, then you're probably going to get that uh, voice of the chain master, which lets you communicate through your familiar and also. Um, is that the one that lets you see through it as well? Um, yeah, it does a bunch of stuff. Okay, yeah. So, you know, it is a great scouting creature, and that allows you to just scout up ahead. And, oh, you see the bad guy? I'm just going to have my sprite shoot shots into him, and hopefully it fails one until we get up there to actually fight. And then you might get there. Two damage has been done, uh, but it's failed its constitution save, and now it's poisoned for the next minute. Or... <laughs> If it fails it by five, which would be very tough, it's a very low roll, probably not going to happen. But if it fails it by five, it just goes unconscious. Right. I, I could see some creativity. So if you're getting five on your con save, which is very low. <laughs> I know. I know. Uh, it's just so bad. It's not terrible, especially at low levels, though. Like, 
It's not bad. Yeah, I'm not saying that in combat, like specifically in combat, that it's going to be extremely useful. You're right, Kevin. It's it's almost not useful every single time. But before combat or out of combat things, I could see it being worthwhile. Definitely. But then you're comparing it to other stuff like the Quasit, which has invisibility and shape changing, which I think is just universally better for scouting. Sprite has invisibility too. Everybody's got invisibility. Yeah. And it's got its little heart sight thing, which I'd yeah, never seen before. Nice. The sprite touches a creature and magically knows the creature's current emotional state. If the target fails a DC 10 charisma saving throw, the sprite also knows the creature's alignment. Celestials, fiends, and undead automatically fail the saving throw. I don't know when that would be, when that would come up. If I just want to know its current mood, <laughs> might change how you go into a social situation. If you have the sprite yeah. going before, it's invisible, it touches somebody, and. Yeah, you find out they're currently in a bad mood. Maybe you and the party look at each other and go, <laughs> let's come back tomorrow. <laughs> Instead of barging in and asking for things. Yeah, yeah, for yeah, social role-playing and stuff, I think being able to, for sure, without a doubt, know somebody's emotional state can be very beneficial. Yeah. So I would love that, like, just in real life. Just <laughs> <laughs> That would make so many conversations so much easier. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And there's no limit on how often this thing can do it. And right. to know that, it doesn't even have to... There's no role or anything. It just just does it. Yeah. Yeah, and like the if it fails the save, which, who cares? It, it like adds a, a little bit more on top of that. It's like, oh, you know it's yeah, alignment. The, the alignment, right? Okay. I don't even make alignments for like 95% of NPCs. That's not the first thing yeah, that comes to Yeah, most of them would just be true neutral. Right. <laughs> Like most commoners and stuff, like the right. farmer tending to the fields, they're, they're just all true neutral. They're a normal the person. Default. Stop asking, why did I let you get a Sprite? <laughs> <laughs> but no, yeah, I do it, like it, the Sprite. It's, I think it's been overlooked, at least by us. Yeah, yeah. No, well, all right, so here's the deal. You look at, the only one that's mechanically not good, and I've read something, is like the Pseudo-Dragon for some reason sucks. I remember seeing some rating and analysis but you look at the pictures of these things you've got this little nerd with wings and spiky hair you're a warlock i'm gonna choose the scorpion demon or the horrible horned two-toed death monster i'm a warlock man you're thinking of this from this perspective. sidekick dude you're thinking of this from the perspective of a great old one warlock or a Hexblade Warlock, or whatever. Literally yeah, fiend, any yeah, like, other Warlock. Archfey and Sprite, or Pseudo-Dragon makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I know. Especially no the Celestial and Sprite. I hate the Celestial too, man. Especially... Why would somebody have the opportunity to be so edgy and choose not to be? <laughs> That's Maybe the they real follow a corrupt part. Empyrean. Which we'll get to later in the show. I'd like to learn more about those. <laughs> <laughs> the circle of the dreams, which I had mentioned, uh, is is not like going to blow you away from a small dip. Um, you can get the their second level ability uh, gives you a pool of d sixes to heal people with, um, which is like not that much at second level. You get two d sixes. If that's all you ever go into for Druid, just to like get the wild shape, it's never going to be that amazing. But if you end up getting that Gift of the Ever-Living Ones packed feature, the invocation that's uh, Circle, or not Circle of the Chain, um, the 
packed to the chain or whatever. Uh, mm-hmm. It makes it so that when you're within 100 feet of your familiar, your healing is maximized. Like any healing towards you is just the max possible. So I could see taking that because it's just good. I mean, anytime somebody heals you, it just goes to the max. That's amazing. Um, but then as a bonus action, you can give yourself a free, you know, a six HP twice uh, per long rest. If you're only level two in Druid, once you go up to level four, then it's like you can do half of your, or I'm sorry, you can do yeah half your Druid level in dice in one bonus action. So you can give yourself 12 HP twice per long rest. It's not a ton. And you also get a whole one HP and temp HP when you use them. So a lot of numbers around there, but long story short, you can maximize the self-healing. It's not a ton. It's basically mm-hmm. the equivalent of second wind uh, for a fighter. But, you know, free healing's free healing. And then you get wild shape, which I wouldn't yeah. turn down. No. <laughs> and that's one thing that no, we yeah. haven't mentioned either is we talked about that a ton with the rogue druid. Uh, just having wild shape not having like a crazy high level wild shape. It doesn't need to be circle of the moon or anything. Just having the ability to turn into a cat is super right. useful. Oh yeah. Tons of utility yeah, outside of combat, but yeah, tons and tons of utility there. That's always a given and always a big, just like it's, there's always the tempt of going one level into warlock to get Eldritch blast. Cause mm-hmm. there's tons of in combat utility there. And it's always going to scale with you two levels into drew. It's also always tempting because yeah, wild shape has a ton of utility even if you never go past two i mean you get it twice a day for one hour each so total two hours which isn't super long and nothing really above like challenge rating one fourth i think mm-hmm. it might even just be challenge rating zero if i'm remembering no, it's, correctly it's one right fourth for a second i believe yeah but that's still yeah infinitely useful a cat a rat a spider whatever infiltrate spy what yeah whatever there's there's a million and one uses and I think one thing to keep in mind is it does, with that situation, you really are totally out of combat utility. Like, even considering how crappy, like being a wolf, you get 11 hit points. That's also an action, so it's like, it eventually becomes a huge waste. But out of combat, yeah, it's really, really friggin' cool. Mm-hmm. And then let's talk a bit about Circle the Moon and Combat Wild Shape, if there's much synergy there with Warlock. I think there can be some based on certain subclasses of it. The a lot of the the initial assum- assumption is I think Hexblade, but if you really start looking into it, it doesn't work that well with Moon Druid. Because the whole thing about using charisma and your special weapon and all that can't be used while wild chip. So that just compl- Hex Warrior basically completely goes out the window. Right. If you're trying to be circle the moon. Um you can Hexblade's curse though, well shaped. It's not cast in a spell. It's just a bonus action. Or not a bonus action. It's just a class feature. So one I think that's nice. Then. Yeah. One level yeah. dip into to the Hexblade, of course. Can you... But if you're going that route, then I think you're probably better off going like the Fiend. Um, if you reduce hostile creatures, zero hit points, you gain 10 hit points equal to Charisma plus Warlock level. Um, you could also get Burning Hands and Command. Though at first level of Hexblade, you get Shield. Hmm, Which you can't, you can't do well-shaped. Right. Um, you could do Wrathful Smite, actually. That Since that's a concentration, you could cast it before transforming. Always love and those. And then transform, and then you get your Wrathful Smite off of your you know, your bear attack or whatever. 
Right. And I think one thing that's important to remember because warlock or multiclassing with warlocks is weird. Once you have access to those spells, you can use your druid spell slots to cast it. So if you want to use Wrathful yes. Smite more often, you can. And you start with your Warlock ones because those come back on a short rest. But, you know, it's not like you only get one use of it because you took a one level dip. Or I don't know what level Wrathful Smite is. It's one. Oh, okay. Yeah, so you get that real early on and then just use all your, your Druid spell slots for it. Even if you're not in your Wild Shapes, if you just want to do Shillelagh and then Wrathful Smite with your with your wisdom club, <laughs> your wisdom club, <laughs> wisdom club. That's yeah. what it's called. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. Like... Then I get, there's no weird, no specific name for it. Just a wisdom club. <laughs> you know, I like some just crazy off the top of my head thing like shillelagh or no, I don't think it's like that. that. Yeah. A wisdom. Club. No, that's just a spell name. I don't know what you're getting. <laughs> wisdom <laughs> stick. When my grandfather, some punished sense me, him. he did not tell me to get the shillelagh. <laughs> He told me to get the wisdom stick. <laughs> <laughs> so you're playing like a an old grandpa druid who threatens people with his wisdom stick. Oh god! <laughs> so that's just sound pretty inappropriate. Is it, oh, does it? Yeah. Does it have to? I don't know. No, it doesn't oh, have boy. to. Obviously, don't ruin it, Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> so are you being a prevert? Get my wisdom stick. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, Circle of the Moon in... I, I, I don't know. I have a hard time with that. Just because you are going to be holding back from a lot of the spellcasting stuff. Um, that's... I guess, really, I don't know what, what pact you would go in Warlock. Or if you really do just want to do a one-level dip... Uh, just for that Eldritch Blast, but it seems weird to me to dip into Warlock for Eldritch Blast and then spend all of your time as a bear because bears Except can't for Eldritch you Blast. You you only twice, twice a day. Hmm. You could do it, so it gives you some utility out of it. Uh, or like the Archfey, so you get um, you would get Fairy Fire and Sleep, both really good spells, especially at low levels. Sleep, yeah. especially at low levels, Fairy Fire is always useful, right? And it could be done before you transform and then keep it up actually i don't think sleep's even concentration sleep's kind of garbage i mean <laughs> at you're... low level sleep is amazing you're right you're right it's <laughs> and just... then at about level five it tapers off but that's like most of the game <laughs> <laughs> it just depends well there's a lot of low level <laughs> we always hurry through like one through three so it makes like five seem to get there real fast but not everyone does that and then um, in Fate Presence, it's not cast into spell. You could use it. That's where you could um, you could create a 10-foot cube originating from you. Everyone in it needs to make a wisdom saving throw. Or they will become charmed or frightened by you until the end of your next turn. And then don't they get something at... Uh, it might be later levels, but can't they like teleport? Yeah, 6th level, Misty Escape. Where yeah, you could become invisible and teleport 60 feet away to an unoccupied space and you're invisible until the start of your next turn or you cast or attack a spell. Yeah, so you might not get that 6th level in Warlock if you're trying to go down the Wild Shape train, but that's that's such a good one. I really like that. And that's per short or long rest. So just what you use your reaction, turn invisible, teleport 60 feet. And then you're invisible until the start of your next turn or until you attack or cast a spell. Right. 
Which is, I mean, a cool ability, but it's pretty far to chase. Mm, yeah. Something. I mean, of course, then you get other Warlock stuff. Your Cantrip Gnome goes up. Your Warlock Spell Slots go up. Things like that. But if you're trying to focus on Moon Druid, then you're really delaying that progression. Right. Yeah. I think even our last yeah. episode, uh, we talked about how Moon Druid's very important to stay the track just because of that. Right. Uh, the elemental transfer or when you can change into an elemental i think that's at 11th level um delaying that in any capacity is difficult to say the least 10th but yeah 10th level okay even better Mm -hmm. you know one this is like what i said before there is just like this trove of stuff you can get in eldritch invocations that sometimes make sense but often don't but with multi-classing, it becomes weird. One thing is, uh, like, Armor of the Shadows is something... I think about my AC all the time as a druid, because eh, it's garbage. Mage Armor, at will, is something you can get with Armor of the Shadows, uh, Eldritch Invocation. You can just mm-hmm. cast it whenever. And the problem here is now you've got... You're dependent on your dex, which is, you know, 13 plus dex is your new AC. So you'd need that to get high. And to do that now, you need a charisma require. It's like... Yeah, it's it's kind of starting to stretch it's things. Tough, yeah. I mean, just... Yeah, so it, it seems like a good idea, but I don't know. But uh, my... Dump everything else. My druid actually won't wear uh, magical armor either. Only only wood. <laughs> just... Only wood. Yeah, just strap some wood planks <laughs> to my arms. And that's the only armor. Way better than you think it would. But, like, I only want dead trees, like, naturally killed trees. If they were... Organically killed. Yeah, yeah. If somebody... They had to die of old age. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or the bark fell off naturally, you know, like like a, a tree <laughs> struck by lightning. Uh, that's totally fair game. What about termites or something like that? Infesting and oh, killing Kevin. the tree. Um, I think that's fair. I mean, as long as it's it's natural, then you know that's that's all totally good. Unless somebody put those termites there, so like I would have to source right. the termites to make sure that like <laughs> you know there wasn't any funny business, like a wizard putting right. termites in the like as an invasive species. As long so as they you have natural. to do that with your lightning too, you have to make sure it was <laughs> organically grown lightning and not magic lightning. <laughs> Is it, was this Shit, free that range actually becomes lightning? a legit problem. <laughs> <laughs> Only in this universe can you have that issue. Right. <laughs> Naturally occurring lightning. You track it down and find out it was some random wizard pe- practicing their spells. And now you just like have to give up your ah, armor. Shit. Yeah, yeah, you strip your armor off. <laughs> Go bury it in the woods. Plant, oh, plant that- a new seed over it so as it rots into the earth. Yeah. You know, that'd be the worst, <laughs> the worst and most convoluted quest line ever. Is you like, there's like a company that's making druid armor, but they're making it suspiciously fast. <laughs> you find out, you know, one of the proprietors is using call lightning to harvest this, you know, wood, and then your players are just gonna look at you and be like, "What the fuck are you doing?" And the druid just slams. <laughs> Why his can't fist we down? fight goblins? <laughs> Why can't we fight dragons? It's like, no, you have to make sure this is properly sourced wood for the druid armor factory. <laughs> the druid just slams down his fist like, I'm here. I'm ready for it. Charges <laughs> off into the woods. <laughs> you guys just want to leave him? That's for the best. Yeah. <laughs> Reroll, buddy. <laughs> All right. Uh, Role playing reasons. We should probably talk about that. Yeah. A bit. Druid, multi-class into the warlock. 
to me makes sense. There's a million and one ways to go about that. Every time Warlock comes up, we always talk about how that's always an interesting multi-class because it usually requires a deliberate choice on the character's part. Right. Yeah, no, and I totally agree here too. I don't think anything takes away from that. You know, I think that it's very natural for anybody to feel like they don't have enough power. Warlock is supposed to be that easy way forward to get more power. So a druid who wants to protect people and they can't, they're not seeing the way forward. Uh, People aren't listening to them. And some entity says, hey, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours and give you Eldritch Blast. Right. Perfect. I think yeah, right, like Archfey absolutely makes sense for a druid to run into an archfey and there's their day to day life. Right. <laughs> really? Right. Yeah. So they uh I think what I am more curious on for from a role playing perspective for this one is more about what the being would want from this druid. Um because a druid as a whole, it's usually like their deal to just keep nature in check. You know, so what would an Archfey really bring to the table to say like, hey, you know, I'll give you some extra powers, give you a connection with the Feywilds, um, but I'm going to need you to do this. Uh, and I think that's where things can really separate and you can define your own character. Right. Because. Yeah, you could do. So- no, go ahead. Go if you've got an idea. I, I, yeah, something where maybe part of the forest destroyer would sort of protects and keeps in balance. There's a sort of the. The veil between the material plane and the Fey Wild is thin, and so there's a lot of Fey creatures in and out of there, and you could kind of easily transfer between the two of them. And the Archfey of that area feels they're under threat, and so they kind of recruit this druid where, yeah, you get extra powers and you'll have a bit easier time of protecting your forest and your land, but that also means you're protecting us and right. just kind of, you know, let us do our thing. Or in the more. Or there's. Go on. On the more edgy side. Uh, if you have the Archvey explaining, you know, like, hey, you know, I'll give you power, whatever. Um, I just need you to help me, you know, transfer between the Feywilds and the Material Plane. You know, just like one or two times, you know, it might be helpful. Um, and then they, upon success or maybe unraveling the plan, uh, find out that they're really trying to bring the Feywilds to the Material Plane as a whole. Um, and bring that kind of chaotic element of that realm or even just taking over the material plane. I mean, that's something you can definitely play up. Right. Yeah, or, everyone or, always thinks that the Fae's are good, but they're not. They're evil. All of them. I mean, hags are Fae. Yeah. Elves are Fae. They're not. <laughs> Say they're not all evil. A lot of them are very mischievous, and there are definitely evil ones and good ones. And... Right. Uh, you could also, of course, do like just a classic kind of corruption arc for the character they're a druid and they're really you know they're they're seeing they're forced or whatever they're trying to protect getting destroyed and they can't stop it so they sell their soul to the devil yeah for more power i mean that's very classic warlock stuff yeah or they start looking into old arcane ancient magics for to increase their power and end up tapping into a great old one and kind of go insane but hell they have eldritch blast and they could scare people. <laughs> or they find a sword and they're like, nope, that's metal. They're like, yep, yeah, yeah, nope, that's, this This one is not for me. I could feel it. There are better ways to go about this. Is there a devil I could sell my soul to? Oh my God. That's That gave me an idea for a really just cheap, lazy, try-hardy multi-class of, they accidentally find a 
Hexblade patron in the form of a metal weapon. And I pick it up and I'm like, oh! And the Hexblade's like, nope, nope, don't touch me, nope. And they're like, no! No take backs. And they have to like, it's like a buddy comedy between you know, a druid and the sword he doesn't get along with. <laughs> don't do that, but. Well, it'd be great because it wouldn't even use the sword. Like, as we discussed, the. the I mean, if it's like a circle of the moon, the best thing for them to do is really just take the uh, the Hexblade's curse uh, that they get per short rest uh, and get them crits on 19 and everything else that comes with it. Uh, but actually swinging the sword, they're like, well, I don't have a high charisma, so why am I going to bother? Uh, so they can just really... Just it around. They just play up the whole, like, no, I'm not going to use you. You're metal. I can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, other way around, Druid... Or, I'm sorry, Warlock going into Druid feels a good bit trickier to not yeah. make that feel shoehorned in there. Yeah. I mean, I would... Not to keep bringing this one up, but I would probably allow Circle of the Dreams for an Archfey Warlock, and it would really be just reflavoring the Druid class as how you're manifesting your abilities. You know, if you take two levels yeah. into Druid, it's like it doesn't need to be a whole like, I love nature now. It's more of just, hey, this is how I'm going to give you your powers. Um, and I can see that working out well. Yeah, that's very true. Where you, you kind of yeah, get throw out the the typical source of classes and just sort of yeah, that's how they're manifested. I mean, that's what we're we're doing now, basically with my current character, Rogue Paladin. It's right. Not so much getting the Paladin stuff from a god or a devotion. It's just sort of how his magic and talent manifests. Right. Right. And that's I'm definitely a big fan of that. Like I said, you have the arcane trickster rogue subclass that mm -hmm. you know it doesn't really make sense for your character to be all that intelligent or arcane sensitive it's just like basically he got powers in the way that a sorcerer no normally does and it's manifesting as you know arcane trickster it's not that much so it's arcane not a trickster deal. paladin yeah right <laughs> <laughs> it really is a great great multi-class it is hey yeah. when that we're gonna like accidentally happens <laughs> Getting super off topic. Um, so if we want to try and keep it though, where right. it's not reflavor in that, where it's like there's you have the clear walk and the clear drew and like the player handbook descriptions of each. There's the the redemption arc. We talked about the corruption arc, but the opposite, where they've started working with a fiend or a great old one for a while and realizing, okay, this isn't <laughs> quite okay. I'm upsetting the natural order and balance of things and corrupting myself in the process, and so they devote themselves to nature and. Yeah. Become a druid, but then that gets hard to justify why they would still be using their warlock powers. Well, I don't think there's anything wrong with still using the warlock powers. One thing that's made explicitly clear is that upon the agreement with your your being, it's it's right in the contract language, Kevin, um, it states <laughs> that they can't really take that power away, uh, at least from a rules-as-written type deal. Um, it's kind of right. expected that if you just stop taking levels in Warlock, you're like, oh my God, this dude's trying to get me to blow up the natural order of the world. Um, I'm going to stop. The guy, the, the Eldritch being great old one is just kind of like, eh, you got me, but you can keep Eldritch Blast, um, but I'm not going to give you any more power because you're not listening to me. Uh, so right. or actually, I think to make it more interesting is then they come after you. Right. Or they send other Warlocks. Right. Yeah, I was going to say... I, they rules is written they can take your powers away by just straight fucking killing you <laughs> like, there's not a single patron in the warlock realm that can't beat your party that's right. kind of why they're patrons right so you know right. they always have but that you have ones on may night like the great old ones though that, that one's actually probably set up best for this because there's a really good chance they don't even know 
you. They right. Don't, they don't think about you. They don't even like fully register your siphoning power off of them because they're so foreign and powerful and on a completely different level. They just don't give a shit. Right. So then when you turn and so away, then you stop, it's like, yeah, you then turn towards the, you know, dru- druidic path uh, for whatever reasons. Right. Uh, there's obviously the because you want something mechanically reasons, uh, but more than likely it makes sense for your character. You know, maybe the campaign's very centered on nature or has a lot of nature themes that have come up and that's what made your character realize it. Great. Go into druid. I, I can see that. Yeah. Or whatever your patron was having you do was kind of like the opposite of what a druid does right you know i can see like a fiend um something like that or like a devil or demon type patron they burn down the forest yeah pretty much or let me uh, help me bring demons to this area of the world which of course is going to mess up everything and upset the natural order and the balance in nature and so as a reaction you go complete opposite direction of druid i think they would take more than a reaction (laughs) but um The quality content. This is what people tune in for. (laughs) Puns. (laughs) All right. Yeah, I can't think of many other reasons, though, beyond the redemption arc. Uh, I find it difficult to wrap them up together in, like, a mutually uh, pursued interest. I don't see somebody being... Unless you're Archfey. Unless you're Archfey. I think Archfey is fine. Or Celestial, too. I can very much see certain celestials, especially like a true neutral, or I just like new, not true neutral, just neutral type celestial entity. Yes, then you're their patron, and they start worrying about the balance being upset in this area of the world, or in nature, or you know the orcs and or the humans over there are getting too a little too ambitious and tearing everything down. I want you to go take care of that, and in the process, you meet up with a druid circle and kind of get trained in their ways a bit too and i, I could see i would think I most celestials it. would not have a problem with that no yeah I, i'm i'm with you there i think that's definitely i i don't think i would ever play that i don't like that but i could see somebody else wanting to do that <laughs> <laughs> and then i know mechanically we all hate it but the undying with a spore druid feels kind of sounds kind of nice which like one it feels like <sighs> the undying oh flavor wise yeah okay i'm with you yeah, we, yeah, the mechanically we all hate. So we went way too much we detail in episode a while ago, but again. no, we don't. I don't know which episode that was. I will try and track it down, but we had an entire 10, 15 minute conversation about why we hate the undying. So, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, yeah, and you have a whole character that's kind of based around this sort of mastery of life and death. And so they got the Sporger, which is about decay and um, all that, and then the undying fitting with it. So, like, you're kind of avoiding it yourself well facilitating manipulating that stuff with others i could see it if you only wanted to do like the the one level dip into warlock uh just for that eldritch blast and you know small thing in yeah sure go for it yeah and then you could kind of flavor it just a bit on the edgier side of things where the sporger is about like fungus and mushrooms decay which is a little gross but still feels i don't know just like it doesn't like turn my stomach no you know thinking about it but then you bring the undying warlock into it and it's not just fungus and stuff now you got like maggots and like the bacteria of decay and flies and hmm. see that it just makes it kind of gross yeah so that is turn a up lot. The they're doing the same thing and, but i don't like maggots i don't like the word maggot yeah <laughs> so, compare that gross. to fungus fungus is it literally has fun in the name i know that's low-hanging fruit right. but 
It's a much better word. Also, it's Gus in the name. I've never met a Gus I didn't like, so it's like a fun Gus. That's true. Yeah. Literally, the super big bad guy of Breaking Bad was Gus. I didn't watch Breaking Bad. Oh, you should. <laughs> this would give you an excuse to have Cloak of Flies if you took five levels yeah. of Morlock. Yep, that's what I was thinking, too. I, would, I was disappointed, disappointed as five levels. I was hoping it would be you could get at second level. That one's great. Yeah. Five levels might might not make it worth it. Would somebody like to go over what Cloak of Flies does for the folks at home? So it's flies. A, <laughs> yeah, basically, as a bonus action, you, so you can get this as a fifth level invocation. Bonus action, you can surround yourself with a magical aura that looks like buzzing flies. Uh, it extends five feet from you in every direction. Last until you're incapacitated or dismiss it as a bonus action. So it's not a time limit. You can, in theory, just walk around all day with us. <laughs> it gives you advantage on intimidation checks, but disadvantage on all other charisma checks. And any creature that starts this turn in the aura takes poison damage equal to your charisma modifier. <laughs> you could use it once per short or long rest. Like- so you could just be a complete asshole and just have this always on and just sitting in a tavern walking down the narrow road of your party just always on. it's actually great for social distancing <laughs> make sure people stay 10 feet away from you at all times otherwise they literally take poison damage yep yeah there's no save on it or anything it just happens that's what makes it real nice yeah 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 that's really good and again mixed with spore druid it makes you it, it makes people not want to get close to you that's for sure mm-hmm Use your reaction to make the have them make the con save or take necrotic damage, and then they're also within ten feet, so they're taking the poison damage. It's a lot of effort to get there, uh, to take five levels in warlock, and then a good amount in spore druid to have that be good too. But I like it. Yep. Total waste of time, but you're covered in flies. You know. <laughs> uh, I can get behind it. <laughs> um. One question that I've heard from from viewers a lot is to discuss, at least briefly, what races might work well for this. So I looked into that a little bit. Half-Elf was kind of the obvious one because half-elves get the plus two to charisma and then plus one to two different stats. Um, I think half-elves are like the multi-class royalty because of that. Uh, They make it very easy since so many things are charisma casters. Other ones, tieflings, because they get plus two charisma, once again, just making it easier. Tieflings and warlocks mm-hmm. also go hand in hand, as they always have. Then the Isn't there, they added a tiefling that I think it's wisdom to now. Did they? I think they did add some tiefling variants. I don't remember if those ever yeah. became official. I thought they did. I, oh. I think they are. Okay. Aren't they in Volos or Mordenkainen's? I think they might be Mordenkainen's, because that added the, the whole devil's. Thing, devils and demons conflict right more. yeah morning cadence makes a lot of sense yeah, yeah. i guess keep talking yeah that's fine up here um the last race that i know literally nothing about is a kalishtar it was added in the eberron books and we are not the people to talk about eberron lore uh that is in zero mm-hmm. ways any of our wheelhouses but it does add plus two to wisdom and plus one to charisma um i also just briefly looking through the lore saw that they have some connection to dreams or the lack there of dreams so i kind of liked it with my uh uh circle of the dreams and archfey warlock now i will turn that one over to listeners to some extent if there is uh some reason why that doesn't work or something that you know about the kalishtar race that you want to talk about you go ahead and do that let us know uh because i am very ignorant on it (laughs) Yeah, and by the way, the uh, I'm 
probably going to butcher how you say this, Fierna Tiefling, F-I-E-R-N-A. Okay. It doesn't say where it's from here, but yeah, they get Charisma plus two and Wisdom plus one, and then they can cast Friends as a cantrip at third level Charm Person as a second level spell uh, once per day, fifth level Suggestion once per day. That's nice. Yeah. I forgot Tieflings get the uh, the natural casting. Forgot about that. Yep. Love me some Tieflings. So what else? I mean, what else about the, the Druid Warlock? Uh, I think that we kind of covered it. The uh, thing that I would like to reiterate, though, is like uh, druids do not get good cantrips right. at all. They have like the weakest cantrips in the game for a full caster, uh, except maybe bards. But so you do get the eldritch blast, and that is kind of a big deal for a druid. So that's worth just kind of noting. Yeah, and I think you're right. I think it's it becomes difficult only because you know how much of your ability score increases, are you going to focus on charisma just to have a good cantrip um, when you're sacrificing your actual spell save? Um, and, you know, are you even going to throw invocations at the Eldritch Blast, uh, which is, you know, what really makes it such a great cantrip is when you start adding your uh, charisma to the damage rolls or when you start pushing and pulling creatures or whatever any of the other 20 Eldritch Blast related invocations are. I think you're going to be missing out on a lot of that unless you really focus on on Warlock. Yeah, that's definitely true. Mm-hmm. So overall, good flavor. I think it's got a ton of flavor. Mechanically, I still don't love it. Yeah, it's a few ways here and there to do it, but it's not, not really exciting me. This is not one of the ones where I want to go play it. Yeah. Yeah, I probably wouldn't play it either. I'm having fun with my Spore Druid. I'd just be a regular Warlock, to be honest. <laughs> and again, there's that the limitation of both 13 Charisma and Wisdom is kind of tough. Yeah. Especially because like, you don't want to just dump Dexterity. No. Or Constitution. Like right. ever. <laughs> so, yeah. Little tough. Well, cool. I think we're good. To... I think so as well. Let's go ahead and move on to our Pinocchio minute, uh, where <laughs> nailed. <it>. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I think that's it for the warlock druid or druid warlock. Or no, 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 no. You don't get to re-record that. You're 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 keeping your your fuck up there. I'm not editing that out. I'm just gonna edit it before I, I send it to you. Hey. But that ah, that's gonna be a major. Failure. I know, that's right? That's gonna be out of sync. Yeah, <laughs> I have to resync it halfway through and figure out what where your cut is. Don't do that. Pinocchio right. minute. Go on. Here. All right, all right, all right. Whatever. We're done with Druid Warlock. Moving on. Before we get to our monster of the week, uh, this episode was sponsored by Scabbard RPG Campaign Manager and World Building Tool. Uh, Scabbard can help even the most disorganized DM put together a fleshed out world and lets you spend your time world building instead of trying to remember minute details. Uh, I've been using it for the past year now and have absolutely loved how it actually keeps me focused on world building uh, and lets me give an answer anytime my players ask who the bartender was at that miscellaneous bar they visited seven months ago. Uh, so that alone is 
worth everything on it. Uh, they've recently added a proper noun detector. When you save a note of any kind, Scabbard will scan the text and alert you if it finds any proper nouns that you may want to track or expand upon. Right now, our listeners can get an extra month plus 10% off a hero subscription if you go to scabbard.com forward slash monsters, and that's scabbard with one B. So scabbard.com forward slash monsters. You can find that link uh, with the show description on our website, Twitter, all of the normal places. Uh, If you are not yet, make sure to subscribe to our subreddit, uh, which is our monsters and multiclass. Follow us on Twitter, which is monsters underscore multi, and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast and make sure to leave a review. It's really helpful with other people finding us and getting more listeners, beautiful listeners to discuss nerdy things with. All right, with that, let's get to our monster of the week. For this week's episode, we're taking a look at the Empyreans. Empyreans are pretty much the champions of the gods. They are skilled warriors, huge in size, pack a huge wallop, take a hell of a hit. Definitely as you get up there in campaigns, a sort of a good intro to the celestial level of combat. Where you're, like, as you start nearing 20, you realize, okay, it's time, we're done with the material plane. It's time to get involved with the, uh, the games of the gods and the devils. I think Empyreans are a really good way to bring that in. So what do you guys thoughts on the Empyreans? Yeah, so these are very often uh, described as titans, uh, which just makes so much sense. They they seem to be pulled directly from uh, Greek mythology. Uh, they are children of the gods, check. They live forever, check. And they are CR 23, so that uh, sounds about <laughs> right. Uh <laughs> Definitely not something you're going to be throwing at your your lower level party by any means. No. Uh, so, I mean, talking about just the the stat block first, because um, I think we'll we'll get into how to put this into your campaign. Uh, but let's just talk about what makes this thing so deadly. Um, so, as I mentioned, it is challenge rating twenty three. Um, around this point is when I feel like you normally just kind of gloss past the. Uh, the stat numbers themselves of like strength decks and everything. Uh, but this one is, is actually pretty ridiculous. Uh, oh, it yeah. doesn't have a single stat under 20 with its lowest yeah. being 21. Got a strength of 30 decks of 21, 30 con 21 intelligence, 22 wisdom and 27 charisma. And it's funny that that intelligence looks like, it's pretty low down there with only a plus five, but then you realize that no, that's that's still a plus five, <laughs> right? And it's higher than most PCs will ever get, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, it's saving throws, so it has plus seventeen strength saving throw, plus twelve intelligence, plus thirteen wisdom, plus fifteen charisma. Um, even its deck saving throws are still going to be plus five, even though it right. doesn't like have it as a special proficiency. And I think that's. Uh, without a doubt on purpose because just thinking about what spells target decks they're not the ones that shut down combat no Uh, you're talking about ones that deal damage like fireball uh, maybe impede movement um, but not too many where it's just like oh yeah you know just save and or if you if you don't save you just lose Uh, yeah save (laughs) compared to yeah literally all the other ones of like intelligence being plus 12 you're not going to feed them this thing yeah, some con saves can be dangerous, and they don't have technically don't have proficiency in it, but they have thirty con, so they still plus ten. Yeah, 
Yeah, not worried. So, and and then of course, legendary resistance. So they still, if they if they fail, they could still choose to succeed instead. Oh, and magic resistance, (laughs) which means they have advantage on all of these. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um. So I mean, you might be able to succeed in grappling it. It would only have a plus ten to uh to prevent that. You would have to make yourself large. If you enlarged yourself, you could try grappling this thing. For you shouldn't do that though. Like, no, that's, <laughs> you no reason to do that. Uh, yeah, why do you think that would work? It's plus ten. I don't. I don't know. I don't know why you'd do that. It'd be very dumb. Um, <laughs> looking at its skills, it has insight and persuasion, uh, which I think it's interesting that it doesn't have something like athletics. I know that it doesn't need it by any means, so maybe right. that's the reasoning behind it. But the fact that it's insight and persuasion tells me that this, above all, is going to be a very social creature uh, that yeah. shows that it is a, a, a social savant. Um, and that shouldn't be overlooked when when trying to put this together. Um, actually, I forgot to, to bring this part up. I have used this monster before. Do you guys remember? Yeah, it was an arena. Right. It was. Yeah. And when we decided to do this creature... Um, I had the same thought that I always do, which is like, man, I really hope that I'm not going to end up looking back on that fight and thinking, man, I screwed that up. Um, literally within three minutes of reading this thing stat block, I was like, I ran that fight horribly. Uh, <laughs> it was supposed to be just like a generic arena fight where I just dropped you guys in and it was like, hey, go at it. Um, but did you guys notice that this thing has spells like really good spells? Yeah. Yeah, it has yeah. Because first spells. year DMing Jared did not know it had spells. <laughs> <laughs> um, so looking at those, I think they're pretty interesting. At least the ones that it gets once per day. Uh, earthquake, firestorm, and plane shift are the ones that I want to talk about. Um, I don't think I've ever seen firestorm cast ever at our table uh, or at any table that I've ever played in. Um, yeah well it's yeah, a bit... cleric druid or sorcerer right and it's seventh level so you're not yeah, getting really any time early here um but it is a really great damage spell uh it just does everyone makes a dexterity saving throw who gets caught in it but you basically make 10 10 foot cubes uh that you could just place wherever you want in a 150 foot radius and then everything that gets hit by it takes 7d10 fire damage on a failed save, half as much damage on a successful save. Um, that's just a ton of damage. And I couldn't imagine not using that if you were doing an Empyrean fight. Uh, except the fact that I, I didn't use that in the Empyrean fight. <laughs> yeah, and it's <laughs> no, really flexible. It's actually interesting. This is one of those uh, spells that really really fits well for a an npc more than a pc because like at that level you kind of almost tend towards not having so many enemies on the map it's just the nature of D combat whereas when you are the big bad guy in this case you're always going to be facing that many people right so you can find a use for your cubes definitely definitely so i mean just hitting the entire party for that uh average damage of I don't even know what what's seven times six. Who needs to do math? This shouldn't be this hard. Forty two. That sound right? Yes. Okay. So <laughs> forty two damage on average for each person that it hits. You know, you're hitting a single or a, you know four people in a party, and you're doing one hundred and sixty damage potentially. Um, and I think it's yeah, it's save DC is twenty three. 
Mm -hmm. So (laughs) that's pretty nice. The other spell is Earthquake, or one of the other spells. Um, Another one that just, it's high level, so you're really only going to see it in that high level play. And as you just said, Will, another one that I think is very well suited to NPCs using, not so much for PCs. Um, If you're not familiar with Earthquake, um, basically rip some, some, an intense tremor uh, through a hundred foot radius circle. Uh, the ground becomes difficult terrain and each creature on the ground that is concentrating has to make a, con- uh, a concentration check, basically, uh, which is really nice just to force that out of everybody. Uh, and you can also do some crazy stuff like make some fissures erupt through the ground where people might fall in or have to you know get pulled to the side of them. Uh, it's a really good way to just break up the terrain and shape it a little bit to be dis. I guess, uh, I guess against the PCs. Um, also, since it's concentration, it can be held, and every single turn, a person has to make a dexterity saving throw, which against the DC 23, uh, or they're knocked prone. So it's very difficult if you don't have fly or anything. For sure. And it also could do at will greater restoration. So even if you somehow manage to get past this ridiculous saves and get some terrible effect off and in a turn it can just most likely remove whatever effect you got on it yeah that's so, really nice too i even think about that one yeah some good spells but at the same time um so the firestorm that's and earthquake are one a day each mm-hmm. so not a whole lot in like any crazy direct damage spells but i think that's okay right i agree there's one other spell, though, that I think is very important, and that's Plane Shift, uh, which I, once again, had probably never read before this. Um, but the best part about Plane Shift is you can, it like has a whole bunch of stuff that you can normally do of just like, yeah, you can shift planes. Um, but also, it's basically like the coolest banishment ever. You choose a creature within your reach and make a melee spell attack against it, which this thing has plus 15 on. On a hit, the creature makes a charisma saving throw. DC 23. If the creature fails the save, it's transported to a random location on the plane of existence you specify. A creature so transported must find its own way back to your current plane of existence. That's a <laughs> which is such a dick move. Such a dick move. But right. um, I was even trying to think of it like in that the the it's just a good way to get a PC out of the fight. To be completely honest, I actually I'm going to say that it's not, especially because. Like the chances of you teleporting your like barbarian to a plane he's never even heard of is pretty high. And I think it's DM discretion. Um, you know, don't be too mean about it. I wouldn't send them just to like the abyssal plane or something and just be like, hey, good luck. But even just sending them back to the material plane, there are circumstances where you can definitely do that and uh, not feel horrible about it. I also wouldn't start a fight with it because that would really really suck as a player mm. to just like very first turn you just get knocked out of this plane of existence <laughs> great unless you also have plane shift in which case right i guess it's fine <laughs> yeah that, that's one where it depends on the party makeup and the abilities they have because some parties really do not have any ability to fix that situation <laughs> right and i was like you just split the party i mean it could it, so it you could be a, mad it could party. be a campaign ender because or a way to kill you a character. Send, you send 
the barbarian of the city of brass, and then you yell at your players for splitting the party. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I think that this is definitely a creature that can be used as a, like, end of campaign boss fight. And we'll probably talk a little more about that uh, once we get to the, the RP side of things. So you do have to be careful with it. You're 100% right. I would mm-hmm. not start a fight with this uh, or expect this not to have really intense consequences, but it's still a really cool spell that they can use. Right. And a DM is well within their rights to banish somebody <laughs> to the Brass City. <laughs> that fucking elemental plane of fire. Why not? <laughs> Hope you like it hot, buddy. It's <laughs> what you get for fighting an Empyrean. <laughs> Um, um, back on some of their other stats and stuff. They they do have damage immunities, bludgeoning, piercing, and slashing from non-magical attacks. Just complete immunity. Uh, true sight out to 120 feet, so no real trick in this thing. Sneak it up on it, anything like that. Knows all languages. Uh, I do like that. are magical. Yeah. I love that on the languages it just says all. Yeah. It's so badass. <laughs> <laughs> um, the one thing that I found funny was that it says the Imperian's weapon attacks are magical. Um, are there any PC class features that give them resistance unless it's magical weapons? Because I even looked at like... There is magic armor that mm-hmm. does it, I think. Okay, where it's like you have resistance to all non-magical attacks or something along those yeah. lines. In Heavy Armor Master, I want to say it's the opposite, where if it is magical, you can't reduce it by You're three. Right. You're right. But, you know, when you get hit by this, it's not like three damages. <laughs> all that big a deal anymore right yeah so it has two attacks maul and bolt maul is a melee weapon attack plus 17 to hit with a 10 foot reach it's 66 plus 10 bludgeoning damage um and it's the creature must succeed on dc 15 con save or be stunned until the imperial's next turn bolt is plus 15 to hit 600 foot range this is not like where you have the regular and then disadvantage just 600 feet Flat out. <laughs> 76 damage of a elemental type of your choice. Yeah. Heavy so, hitter. Though no multi-attack, which is which odd is at this level. Very interesting. And it's I kind of dislike it because it's very much so a balance choice, not so much a uh a flavor choice. Because then it, mm-hmm. in its legendary actions, one of them is attack. So it's still going to be attacking multiple times per round. They just didn't want you you know, dealing out 62 damage in, in one of this thing's turns, I guess. Right. I say, yeah, the average of that mole is 31. <laughs> it's beautiful. <laughs> yes. And then yeah, 15 con saver be stunned. I mean, that's, and maybe that's the reason why is because the ability to stun them on the first one and then get advantage on the second attack is too much. I don't know. When you start talking about plus 17 to hit, you're really not going to miss too much. Yeah. I, I honestly think it was a design choice in the legendary actions because this is one of the OG monsters from the monster manual. But, you know, legendary actions, it makes the perfect kind of rhythm as one attack each time. It's It makes it an interesting creature to fight. It's a good showcase for what legendary actions uh, turn a fight into. Right. Yeah, and then speaking of the legendary actions, these work the same they do for everything else. They have three legendary actions. They reset... The number of actions reset on its turn, and it can use one action immediately after another creature's turn. Uh, and there's three options here. So attack, you can just make one of its attack, it's smaller or bolt. Uh, bolster, so um, an, 
bolsters all non-hostile creatures with 120 feet until the end of its next turn. Um, these creatures cannot be charmed or frightened, and they have advantage on ability checks and saving throws. Which is okay. Um, it's just for one turn, and... I, know, I guess we'll, we'll get to later about if this is going to be fighting with other stuff. And then you have yeah. Trembling Strike, which costs two actions. Uh, it hits the ground with its small, triggering an Earth Tremor. All creatures... On the ground within 60 feet must succeed on a DC 25 DC 25 strength saving throw or be knocked prone. So that's really good, but costing two actions makes me very hesitant to use that. Um, yeah. I would definitely rather start with the earthquake, which is going to be something that you can just hold as concentration. And there, it's basically doing the same thing, but with a 23 DC uh, dexterity saving throw instead of strength. But it's still knocking things prone. I feel like this would only come up once the earthquake goes down. Then right. they might think about using it. Otherwise, just keep swinging that mall, buddy. Right. And if they are fighting with other with allies, if it's if this thing's by itself, it's basically useless. Two actions to knock everything prone, not on your turn. So at best, you will get one more attack off before everyone stands up. Really. Right. Well, I guess no, you could kind of be smart about it and time it up for the end of initiative. And then let's say like this thing's at the top of initiative or whatever. After the last person goes and doing this and then it's your turn. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Well, uh, well, one thing I think that's kind of important is that uh, we've talked about this before, but when you get to intelligence levels of this magnitude, it's very difficult as a DM uh, to play as smart as this thing should. Because it has 21 intelligence. It's going to fight the best way it can. Um, but I'm not a 21 intelligence human at all. Um, so I actually, I'll argue against that. Because while it's intelligent, it is in the flavor said that they do not believe they can die. So it might fight with some level of strategy. But first and foremost, it will fight the way it wants to fight. And it does not think that will end poorly, no matter what it does. Hmm. So they're not trying to trick or optimize. Why would they need to optimize if they're the optimal being? Yeah, but I think that would mean... If they just swing the mall, it doesn't matter. To me, that says that they just naturally know how to do that. They are just good at fighting to this extent where it's not specifically them thinking and planning, but it's because they just know how to fight so well that it comes second nature. They know to use their earthquake first and then start swinging their mall and to fly 10 feet above somebody so that way they, you know, can't hit them, but the Empyrean can. Yeah, oh yeah, they have a 50-foot fly speed. We yes. skimmed over that. <laughs> I forgot about that. I, I think that's like totally wrong. Uh, I think that the idea that they would avoid even avoid getting hit doesn't fit the character. Okay, that's fair. Well. That's fine. I'll give you that. Mm-hmm. That one, even even earthquake, I can see them like not seeing the use of that unless they're trying to destroy a city. They're like, why would I care about an earthquake? Because it's not them beating you with a mall. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I feel like that's not giving them enough credit. Yeah. I get the fly thing. I could absolutely see the, the Empyreans not wanting to do that cheesy thing where they hover yeah. 10 feet yep. above so they could, in the mole's reach, but not in most melee range. And Yeah, I will totally whatever. give you Or that. just fly 600 feet up and rain bolts down. <laughs> okay, that they might do, though. Actually, if, I could see that. Yeah. I mean, that's some just kind of like shit. screaming with eyes glowing. Just, oh. Right. Right. So that's actually really cool and is a very great use of the bolt spell. 
Um, <laughs> yeah, I want that. But to say that it's just going to ignore everything at its disposal just to kind of be a meathead ignores what the stat block is telling us. It's telling us that mm. it's smart, it's wise, it's an amazing fighter. It's not just, it's arrogant, but it's not stupid. Yeah, I'm with Jared on this one. Haha, point in my favor. <laughs> Write it down, somebody. Kevin's on my side and Will's a dummy. So two people are wrong instead of one. <laughs> See how I turn that just right around? I don't know. I, I think that you are losing something, especially if you try. It's tough because I think this is a good introduction to gods. And I think this is a lot of people just like leave all mythology on the table uh, when they transport themselves to magical fantasy realms. And I think there's a lot of fun to be had in those stories, especially with the failures of the gods. And I think this is a perfect character to show that kind of like they're better than you, but that can be a weakness. Okay, that's fair. Yeah. And I think I actually see where you're going with this. And I think it ties into the, the role-playing side of it and how you use this as a DM. Um, not all Empyreans are the same. They have different reasons why they're where they're at and why your party might be fighting them. Uh, so I could definitely see there being a more arrogant Empyrean uh, who is 100% just ignoring any of its... It just thinks that it is the... God's gift, because uh, I guess it is officially a God's gift, but, uh, you know, and, and ignoring its earthquakes or its whatever, it's not trying to cheese it. It just knows that it can just run in there and it can swing its maul and it doesn't need to do anything else. And the idea of it needing to do anything else is almost offensive to it. Um, whereas I think there's the other side where you might have an Empyrean who's extremely intelligent um, and has none of that uh, hubris and just wants to you know, fight the best way possible because it knows it's smart and it knows it can fight to the best of its ability and win any fight without much thought. Yeah. So whatever fits your, uh, what you're trying to do as a DM. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah they there are great, like, meat and potatoes character too because they're not complicated. For this challenge rating, they're, I, they're not the most simple but they're pretty close there's not a lot going on so you've just got this very very impressive stat block to throw at people right and some nice spells but yeah no you're right they're not like you're not going to be using a spell every single turn your bread and butter is going to be swinging them all and dealing 31 damage and stunning people and bolting people that are out of right. range all right so uh then that brings me to the role-playing side of things um, because the big question is is how the heck do you throw one of these into your campaign uh they're generally good creatures it even says on the stat block 75 percent chaotic good and then 25 percent neutral evil it's not very often you see a broken out uh alignment chart but uh there's reasons for it um, but the first thing that they have i think is a great reason why a higher level party might run into these things as like a smaller encounter or smaller arc. Uh, they have this manifest emotion uh, where an Empyrean can experience deity-like fits of serenity or rage, and it can affect the entire landscape and environment around them. Uh, so it says when an Empyrean's unhappy, clouds might cry tears of salt water, 
Wildflowers in surrounding meadows might wilt. Dead fish might wash ashore. Uh, nearby forests might lose leaves from its trees. Uh, and that's the type of stuff that ruins human settlements or humanoid settlements. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so I could very easily see a group of adventurers coming through a town and it's like, hey, why is everybody all sad? And also, why are the clouds crying? Um <laughs> Or even the party seeing that first, just while traveling across the land, uh, they notice a a blight on the land um, and they go and investigate or somebody asks them to go investigate and find that it's one of these Empyreans who's throwing a fit for some reason. Right. And I, I think that's a great way as the stepping stone from transitioning the, your, your level 17, level 18 party from dealing with the material world to the, the other planes, the realms of the gods and devils. Because it's a classic plot hook. You know, there's, there's this issue on the kingdom. And make it kingdom scale so it would still attract them. And maybe even give them some red herrings. We think there might be this evil wizard out there that's doing this or something. You go and find it's this Empyrean. And then you know, give the players a lot of agency on how they want to handle it. Mm-hmm. And you could really spin and weave this into this really much bigger story. You know, why is the Empyrean here? And in a bad mood, well, they were kicked out of their plane. Um, maybe they, maybe they were framed. Maybe they did something that the god deemed unworthy and kicked them out. And so, if you want to stop it, they kind of have this longer, greater quest for you to go try and clear their name or help them redeem themselves. And that obviously could spin into this crazy stuff. Alternatively, maybe they just say, "Not nah, screw this. We're just going to attack you." Once you attack them, a bunch of devils pop in to existence and fight with the Empyrean because they kind of saw this as this vulnerable, you know, really powerful Titan. And so then these devils fight with the Empyrean and even if the party's going to win or whatever, the Empyrean just plane shifts away down to a lower plane because they saw the devils came to its rescue and now you have this corrupt Empyrean which now becomes this recurring villain that needs to be dealt with. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty good too. Uh, and it does specifically mention that that's where the, the 25% neutral evil comes from is Empyreans uh, mm-hmm. who have maybe spent a little too much time in the lower planes and it become corrupted or cursed by evil gods. Uh, and it basically says that they will then go to the material plane because they can't survive on the upper planes after that corruption. Um, and what I love is that last little line there uh, where it can rule over a kingdom of mortals as an indomitable tyrant. Now that right there, yeah, I like that's that a, a campaign builder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's what you just said, Kevin. It's a fantastic way to set it up. If you want them to come in at a very different point, uh, just imagine as a PC where you go into a new kingdom for whatever reason, and the king requests a court with you, and uh, your PC show up, and it's just this absolutely gigantic Empyrean uh, who as stated, is a tyrant, everybody is unhappy. However you want to spin it and get your players interested, it's now their job to take this guy down. Um, right. Which I think is a, a great way to bring in the minions that yeah. we haven't discussed yet. <laughs> yeah. Or even just have it happen to your players' kingdoms, their home. Sure. And all that gets taken over, and that's what spurs them to adventure. They're a bunch of level twos, and they don't stand a fucking chance. Right. But... They could start working towards it, and right. And I think they, that, uh, knowing that's the ultimate showdown at the end with this corrupt Empyrean. 
Definitely. And I think that, you know, this with some minions would be a very memorable uh, campaign ender. I mean, 100%. Yeah. Without the minions, as we have discussed, it is kind of just doing a lot of smacking. Um, so it'll do the damage, but I don't think it'll be very memorable. Uh, but you throw on a royal guard and some, you know, the, the court wizard or whatever, it's going to be pretty tough. Your party's going to need to be very well prepared, uh, well allied, mm-hmm. everything. So I could very easily see that being a, a cool way to bring in the Empyreans. For sure, yeah. You know who'd be a great court wizard for an Empyrean tyrant? <laughs> The Nagpa. <laughs> <Yeah>. Damn it. <laughs> I can't even see the Nagpa being the, the one that talks in Empyrean and to go visit in the lower planes and getting corrupted. Oh my god. No, dude, it's cool. You'll love it. There's beer, there's chicks, and then like, you know, 200 years later, he's ruling over a kingdom <laughs> with an iron fist. Oh, and, and then the Nagpa is what seeks out your party, seeing their potential, and like unites them and sets them on the path to get strong enough to defeat it, knowing that the ensuing battle will probably destroy the kingdom. And then the Nagpa gets swoop in and Huh, Do yeah, that is, that's thing. actually the hard part, I because I don't love that. That seems like a lot of work for the Nagpa to to I mean, build. Do. I know. Is it, though? <laughs> is that how they do it? They build up an Empyrean? Why wouldn't they just tell the Empyrean, like, convince them to just destroy the entire society? They're opportunists. I imagine the Nagpas have multiple threads going. Oh, A bunch okay. of different... Uh, a lot of different buns cooking in different ovens. <laughs> and they're just opportunities. I mean, they've got unlimited time. Yeah, yeah, they got unlimited time. And they're working on all this other stuff. And as they're like going down, working, all right, we're going to start poisoning the king, the king over here to make him mad. They come across this Empyrean who's just kind of a little distraught. And they then corrupt him a bit and just, just see see where that goes. Keep Keeps an eye on him. So, and 300 that, years later, comes to fruition. Right, and that actually would be good because it would build up. It would probably... Uh, for at least a small period of time, propel the kingdom into a period of prosperity uh, as they would get all of these, all of the wisdom of somebody as intelligent and grand as an Empyrean, even if they are evil, they're neutral evil. They're not like, you know, let's just completely turn everything on its head evil. Um, So there might be a lot of knowledge gained in that time period, especially through uh, less than scrupulous means. So I could see the Nagpa actually setting all of that up and then 300 years later being like, yeah, I think that one's been cooking long enough. Let's go ahead and uh, convince an adventuring party to (laughs) rise to the occasion and take down this entire regime. Right. Oh, man. And that's where you can kind of do the video game style. Like It's the more modern day idea of RPGs and video games. If you have like good endings and bad endings, depending on how you played it. Where if that one... If you play into the Nagpa's hands and you just get powerful enough and you just go and kill in the Empyrean, the resulting battle and fallout destroys the kingdom and the Nagpa gets their way. And there's, even though the Empyrean's dead, there's a lot of death and destruction throughout that realm. But if you uh, overcome what the Nagpa's trying to get you to do and you redeem the Empyrean, everybody's happy. The Empyrean realizes the error of their ways. They stick around to help fix stuff, install, you know, rightful leadership. Then the Nagpa gets all pissy and doesn't yeah. get their kingdom destroyed. Or you just find the Empyrean's dad uh, and just tell him that, like, hey, your son's being a huge dick on the material plane. Could you just, like, I deal with him? Seeing this, that would be literally a god. I think they would know. I guess it doesn't really go into that. Why don't the gods intervene? They're not They're not omnipotent. Yeah. And yeah. That, that would be, like, the world's most insane persuasion check is, like, convincing God to care about that. <laughs> The board can do it. 30. Well, fuck. I guess you got it. 
So, okay, maybe maybe convincing the gods uh, most likely won't happen. But, uh, you know, leave it open-ended. It's how your party okay. wants to deal with it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It could happen. It's I could see that where it's like they're aware of it and they're just kind of this sort of grumpy indifference. Right. Like, yeah, my kid's fucking up, but it's still my kid. What am I going to do? Right. And then this, like, powerful adventuring party pops up and, like, really tries to convince them to do the right thing and... This spurns off more quests and shit they need to do. Right. And as you had mentioned earlier, that's a a good introduction to that celestial level uh, campaign style. Uh, Because once you Mm -hmm. get to that point, it's it's very difficult to throw goblins at the party. (laughs) Very difficult. Unless it's a dome-shaped room. (laughs) Specifically optimized for bows. (laughs) We're not doing Goblin Arena. (laughs) Never. All right. Uh, and what else? What other ways? Because I think there's the first way we mentioned is like a very short, like kind of, I don't want to say random encounter. It's not the best way to put it, but like something shorter, a short arc. It could be a random encounter if you're feeling absolutely crazy. Other sides, more long-term campaign. Would this thing be used in any other capacity? I mean, is it going to be the the minion of anyone besides somebody like a Nagpa? It would be the minion of a celestial, like beyond challenge ratings essentially that's about a guy it. be a minion right. of a god yeah um out of all of the celestials i was just pulling this up the empyrean is the uh the highest oh okay perfect at least out of the monsters i have access to in D beyond which is most of them yeah 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 you're not missing too many but uh i think this is actually this is one of those great uh kind of like just base stat blocks that you can kind of almost apply to uh, Greek stories, you know, if you just look up some Greek mythology, you'll find out there's an absolute shitload <laughs> of very complex, interesting stories filled with twists, turns, and moralities, and things you might not have thought of, and you could really just steal, you know, 2,000-year-old stories and throw an Imperium on it and make your players go I bet those it. Greeks yeah. really wish they had scabbard, am I right? <laughs> <laughs> They didn't even have paper, man. They would have <laughs> lost their minds. <laughs> That's actually probably not. I think they did have paper. Yeah. Just... No, everything was etched on the stone tablets. <laughs> all right, so that's all we have on the Imperium. Before we move on, we received this weird message from someone who goes by Cinderblock Sally, and he claims to be some extra planar being that likes to talk about best ways for monsters to kill the party seems to be an advocate for the monsters, and he had quite a bit to say here about the Empyrean. We think this might be a mistake, but we're going to give him a shot, so Cinder, he have said, at it. He said he'd give us Eldritch Blast. Oh, shit. Okay, definitely. Cinder Block, have at it. Salutations. Jared, Will, and Kevin, humans of Earth. I do appreciate you giving me space on your program to help those in need. Some of you know me, most do not. You may come to know me in time, honestly, it is relevant. I'm not here for you. My name is Cinder Bloxley, cosmic zoologist, monster conservationist, and humbler of heroes. Tis my duty and my quest to aid all creatures in their struggle against the ever-encroaching calamity that is adventurers. Monsters, monsters of all shapes, sizes, and alignments, heed my words. I am here to help walk my path, and you may very well survive. 
in this new age of heroism. Today, we speak to the children of the gods. Some of you may call them titans, but I and many others know them as Imperians. Hello there, broodling of the divine. How are you? Probably not worried about being struck down by some mortals one-fifth your size. Why, I wouldn't be surprised if the possibility of defeat has never even crossed your cosmically overconfident, hyper-emotional mind. And therein lies one of your greatest weaknesses. Honestly, it's a bit cliché. Oh, I'm sure you have many a tale about wrestling storm giants into submission or throwing down with an abyssal horror or two. You've most likely won most every battle you've had in single combat. But, and this is a big but, this can lead to a level of independence that is detrimental to your survival and or your schemes. Sometimes the battle is more tricky than trading bashes back and forth, and an adventuring party is the trickiest combatant I have ever studied. No, I don't doubt your cleverness, in addition to your might, but even the shrewdest Arkvay need to remember the simple things sometimes. For example, numbers. Numbers matter. The best, the best advice that I can give you is to raise yourself an army. There are few creatures in the cosmos better fit to bolster legions than you. And trust me, monsters and mortals alike will follow if you guide them. And yes, yes, I know. About three quarters of you are just going to follow in your parents' glorified footsteps, spending most of your days luxuriating in your celestial domains. It is always easier to do nothing in the face of injustice, isn't it? Mm. But some of you, some of you will look upon your divine heritage and turn your back. You will see the air in their ways and the foulness of men, and you will say this stops now. It is to you brave vindicators of the oppressed that I speak, those willing to stand and defy the gods and mortals alike, abandoning archaic notions of good and evil, driven to lead monsters into a new age of prosperity and peace. Don't just be a champion, be a leader, be a symbol. Those you inspire may end up doing much more of the work than you anticipated. This may not be the advice you want, but this is the best way to succeed. Oh, and uh, one more thing. If you are able to somehow wrangle a boulder and keep it alive... Your inborn immunity to natural magical attacks combined with the beholder's natural ability to nullify any and all magical weapons and other effects with a simple glance can make you more or less invincible against the unprepared. Maybe just keep that one in your back pouch for emergencies. Anyway, that's all for now. Thank you again, Eminem, for bringing me onto your platform. Mm, my familiar has helped me set up some uh, social media accounts. Uh, find them if you like, and uh, do be in touch. I love you. All right, so that was weird, um, but <laughs> extremely informative. Uh, so, yeah, Im Imperians, make sure to grab some minions, uh, because action economy is a thing. Great. Uh... <laughs> I think that's all we have for the Empyrean. Uh, anything, any last thoughts on this one, Kevin, Will? 
None for me. All right. So uh, let's move into our final segment of Ask Monsters and Multiclass. Well, final segment of the episode, not the last segment of Ask Monsters and Multiclass. Oh, we'll yeah. No, that's, that is different. That you was confusing. Correct. We're yeah. sick of your questions. Stop asking. <laughs> the questions thing was a horrible idea. Oh, my God. <laughs> All right. No, it's not. If you do have questions, uh, feel free to send them our way. Uh, and yeah, any anything else that we have uh, talked about, if you have any thoughts or opinions that you want to add on, uh, make sure to, to send them our way. We're more than happy to continue the discussion. This is already a very long episode, so uh, I imagine that there's there's more to cover that we probably missed. But with that, let's get into our our question of the the question of the week. I'm not going to call everything of the week. This is from user Wampa Stomped, and he says that I'm probably going to run out of the abyss for some friends. Uh, did you pay attention to all of the survival aspects? What did you like about it? And you know, what did you kind of ignore? Uh, so Kevin, you ran out of the abyss for us, I believe a year mm-hmm. plus ago. Something like that. I think it was a year ago. We ended it. And we we did, we put a lot of thought into the survival aspects. So I'll let you start. For sure, yeah. So I think this is also kind of a good question just to bridge to that in general, how we handle that in different ways too. Because usually when it comes to the survival stuff, we skip over it. We don't track food and water and carrying capacity and foraging for food, which in some senses kind of screws over various features, especially like for the ranger and things like that. But it's just not something we find interesting most of the time. Specifically, though, for Out of the Abyss, and then this could apply probably to a lot of different campaign styles, we felt it was really important to track that stuff heavily and make it a really big part of it. So a campaign like Out of the Abyss, especially the first half of it, is I mean, it's a pretty dark campaign, um, and it's really built around this feeling of helplessness and being a sort of fish out of water. And that one specifically, you are in the Underdark, and... You you were, I guess you could be an underdark Denzian, but it's probably better that no one he was. And you got tra- captured by draft slavers and dragged to the underdark, and you're trying to get out. And it is a foreign, harsh world that you do not understand. And with that, tracking the survival aspects became a huge, huge part of that campaign. We actually got really, really strict on it. Um, there's guidelines in all the various books and stuff about how much people need to eat and drink a day and how to go about finding it and the penalties if they don't. And that really added weight to this. You you escape out into the Underdark with basically nothing and you need to find your way out before starving to death. It added this, yeah, except this weight to everything you're doing, this kind of shroud that hung over everything that added to that sort of oppression of that campaign without it. Right. If traveling was like, oh, you just figure it out, just move on, whatever. I really think that campaign would have been lacking. And just to keep this more specific, because obviously everyone's not going to play Out of the Abyss for any sort of heavy or kind of darker campaign like that. I think actually, you know, sucking up and tracking that stuff becomes really important. Yeah. And it, it wasn't too impossible to to track by any means. We basically had like a, a pool of resources that we just said, like, all right, this is how much food we have. This is how much water we have. And we just needed to, you know, assign jobs basically while we were going along for foraging. What made it particularly difficult and out of the abyss was the fact that there were so many mouths to feed. (laughs) We like actually had like six or seven NPCs that were traveling along with us. 
Um, and I think who that are was, not very good at foraging or right, right. So they yeah. were definitely more of a hindrance than they were helping by any means. Yes. Now, with all of that said, and I, I 100% agree with everything that you did say, that it added a whole bunch to the earlier levels of Out of the Abyss um, and any type of survival campaign. We definitely hit a wall. We hit a point where we started having so much food and so much water that every time that we were foraging or doing anything, it was just to keep our numbers to a point that we were like good for the next two or three weeks. And around that point is when you ended up just giving us a bag of holding because you were like, eh, I think the magic's worn off a little bit here. Right. So I think there is a a stopping point for it. Um, I, I really loved it at first, but I just don't know if D&D is the the right game to have it going on forever. Like when I'm level 15, I don't want to have to worry about food. That's like not right. that interesting. I, I would say that's probably a very bad way to phrase it. I think like D&D 5th edition, especially the new attitudes coming into it and new player bases and stuff like that, have a lot to do with it. When you get to stuff like this, the best thing in my opinion to do is you've got to optimize systems. You can't make it into this slog of everybody at the table has to now do math more often than they want to. Um, it really depends on your audience, especially in like older school uh, systems, there was just so much to keep track of and so much math. It kind of attracted a certain kind of player base that was really, really into that kind of thing. So especially for people with player bases that may not be into that, I think there's a lot to be added with something like this. Uh, but you really have to look at the system and think, how can I make this impactful, make this make sense, but also make it optimized for my table? Yeah. And we, I think we got there pretty well. Um, you know, just we got used to it and you had all the numbers at, on hand that we needed. Right. But it did get kind of tiresome. Yeah. Even regardless. Yeah, as you guys got more powerful, especially then as you guys started to reach different points of civilization and stuff in the Underdark. Um, when you could resupply and stuff, that's when it started to fade away more. But early on, yeah, I think it had a lot of tension, created interesting choices, especially yeah. with Out of the Abyss and with the <clears throat> NPCs, the entourage you have with you. You know, if, if roles start going real poorly and you're not finding much, there starts to become that in-character question of, all right, Darby, who's going about food? Who are we going to eat? Yeah, right. are we leaving people behind? Right. And I think if it was going to be a bit more of a mainstay, uh, I think we probably would have... I'm maybe speaking out of my ass here, but I think we probably would have nerfed the amount of food that you find. Um, and this is just, you know, it always comes down to the table. It's just very difficult with the pre-written rules in the uh, Dungeon Master's Guide to, I guess, tweak it the same way that you can an encounter. You know, like if I'm running an encounter for my normal group, you guys, I know that a challenge rating 10 against you as level 8s is going to be not a big deal. Uh, whereas if we flip that around and it's a group of new players and I throw a challenge rating 10 thing at them, it might be a huge problem. Um, I think it kind of goes in that same mentality with foraging, where if we're looking at it from a group who can very quickly break down and optimize that to say we need exactly two people, on average we're going to get this much food and it'll never be a problem. Uh, for them, you almost need to find ways to make it a little harder. And it might be throwing in a attack in the middle of the night where a creature comes and steals your food. It's not attacking you, it's stealing your food or it's stealing your water or resources in some mm -hmm. way. Um, and ways to bump up that difficulty. It's not explicitly written into the the rules provided, but there is a lot you can do still. 
Yeah, I wish I would have done more of that, just kind of in hindsight. Um, did stuff to take away your food, or you guys had a lot of foragers to punish you more on that, mm-hmm. where then you didn't have, maybe should have made you get lost more and drawed it out, or got ambushed more because you didn't have so many people looking for danger. And right. Or like if we are like ambushed, that. then we're separated because, you know, we're foraging all around. Um, right. You know, there's and there's things you can do. I mean, that's uh, the the beauty of hindsight. I mean, that's that's not a new or hot take. Right. Uh, but there's always different things that when you, you think about it in the past, that's like, oh, yeah, hey, we could have added a lot more to make that more interesting. But I think that for the time for our first foray into it, I think, think it was great. Yeah. But interesting enough, though, we didn't do it with the next campaign. <laughs> yeah. Because it just didn't really need it. it I mean, it didn't fit. It, it really. I mean, yeah. it, I think at the end of the day, it's you got to have a campaign where it fits. Yeah, I think in it, it's a great environmental hazard. You just have to be ready for it. You know, there's a lot of prep work you got to do to be prepared to answer questions and do this stuff. So when you make this an environmental hazard, you have to go and do it fully knowledgeable. But in day-to-day life, even in the harshest of mythical realms, even on, you know, the forgotten realms, there's plenty of food. It's not, it shouldn't be right. an issue. Right. And it feels weird if it becomes one. Yeah. Right. So maybe, maybe if you guys uh, go somewhere where, you know, food isn't as plentiful, you're, you know, traversing a undiscovered cave system uh, that is basically whatever I end up calling the underdark you know, maybe then we bring it in because it's important. And then Will over here is like, I've got good beer. It's fine. We don't need it. Uh, <laughs> so maybe it doesn't work. It's true. But, uh, yeah. you know, I was going to say, actually, yeah, a druid in the Out of the Abyss party would have ruined that. Yeah, pretty quickly. Well, I don't know. They could make 10 good berries a day. It still would have been like them mm-hmm. using a resource. You're right. It would have ruined that aspect. Yeah. Yeah, but at the same time, I would. I, it's really harsh to say ruined that aspect. It's a thing they can do, and there's a reason they can do it. It's a right. mechanic. Yeah, I. I no, you're right, yeah. and it would have the dungeon master couldn't screw the party anymore. <laughs> so it's bad game design. <laughs> uh, <laughs> My players won't die. What's wrong with this game? <laughs> um, but no, I mean, I, I think it's still it's something that you can bring in when appropriate. Uh, it doesn't need to be your entire campaign all the time, as we've discussed. Even when you guys are about to travel for four or five days it's like oh well how much food do we need it's like oh well, you know this many rations and it's like okay well i buy that many rations and yes maybe one of these times i can have something come and steal your food and from there it's like oh you guys are out of food and you have to deal with that okay i mean it'll probably just be going over to good berries but maybe that works for your group whoever you are listener um where you don't have somebody with good berry and that's something that you want to try out as like a a specific hindrance for one travel. Uh, I think there are are times for it and it can be fun forcing people to forage and number track for a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, And I know just, this is might just only be specific to out of the abyss, but like travel times of that were crazy. Like 30 to 60 days between civilizations and villages and stuff like that. And rules as written that calls for foraging rules and the random encounter rules every single day. I ended up chunking them up into five day segments. One roll of foraging, everything covered five days. So just something to consider to make that a little less ridiculous and tedious. Yeah. People like rolling, but not that much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, actually, I, 
I didn't do this for this reason, but if there was like a Druid of Goodberry, the uh, our kind of variant world, we talked about this a few episodes back, would have taken care of it, where while traveling and stuff, where you basically use the greater realism, where to get a long rest you need a week, which means you're not getting your spell slots back for Goodberry every single night. And when it's like 60 days of travel, you're gonna it'll get you through a little bit, especially when you got like the big entourage. Basically, I think there's probably about 10 of you. Yeah. Traveling through the Underdark. Yeah. Um, yeah, forward party member, six NPCs. And and then yeah, this starts at level one, so you only got a couple spell slots anyway. So good berry will help a little bit, but not enough. Basically, all things are fixed by greedy realism on travel. <laughs> Most everything. <laughs> yeah. What episode was that on? Uh I don't know. Just go listen back to all our past episodes, you'll find it. <laughs> it was a recent one. Yeah. No complaining. You've got 100 hours. I guarantee it. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's that's everything for me. You guys got anything else on that? Nope. All right. Nope. Then, uh, yeah, if you haven't yet, once again, make sure just to subscribe to us wherever you can. If you have any additional thoughts as well on anything we talked about today, find us on Twitter. Find us on our subreddit. We love talking about this stuff further out. Um, so, yeah, bring it on. And Kevin, thanks for listening. Next time on Monsters and Multiverse. Join us next time as we have special guests from the Worldforge pod. We're going to discuss the Artificer Monk multiclass and the Shadow from the Monster Man.